the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to episode 6 of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. It's Beltane. So this week, we're going to watch Doctor Who, The Demons, with a full commentary. Probably one of the, the quintessential Doctor Who story of the John Pertwee era. I know it was certainly his favourite story. Absolutely. And the reason that we're looking at the demons in particular is because it's a really, really good story. And that's pretty much the top and bottom of it. So it was transmitted between the 22nd of May and the 19th of June, 1971. That's pretty much the extent of my research on this because it's not like we don't know the story. I do. You see, I'm just, we're just watching the opening sequence now with the rain pouring out of the gargoyles. I do remember Barry Letts, an interview with him somewhere, saying you just couldn't, it couldn't rain that hard. They, were, they had buckets of water that they were pouring through them just to, to make them look even vaguely as if they were running. And it does. It looks wet. It probably was wet if you were the one getting the bucket of water chucked at you. We're watching the cleaned-up version, the, the remastered version... Uh, on DVD and it's much better than previous versions I've seen but it's still not what a shame that this doesn't exist as original film elements imagine how lovely it would be but they have done a good job to be fair absolutely I mean compare this to the original video that came out and yeah it's a real shame we don't have the original videos but at least we have it just watching this back Damaris Heyman she is perfect. Everything that she was in, she played this batty old woman. She was in a lot of the Children's Film Foundation stuff, as I remember. Um, the films from the 70s, probably early 80s. And whenever she was in one, she always seemed to play the mad batty old woman. Yeah, kind of like a sort of slightly more friendly Margaret Rutherford. But she wanders around this episode, and what well, she's coming out with is bonkers. I mean, it's, it's amazing she's not been locked up at Devil's End before now. <laughs> I quite like the fact that he's doing his car maintenance with a blue lab coat on and no speck of oil or dirt anywhere. And a pocket square in a lab coat. (laughs) (laughs) I've never noticed that before. And not only that, a lab coat that doesn't fit properly. It's a bit short in the arm. Oh, well, you need to see his... Unless that's done deliberately to show off his frilly sleeves. Ruffle frills. As somebody who's worked in a laboratory, it's (laughs) it's not best practice in terms of safety. No. And actually, Andy, for uh, the Round the Archives podcast, he and I worked together, analytical chemistry lab, back in the late 80s, early 90s. That's how we know each other. What's a bit of background there. Just a quick plug for Round the Archives. Who are well worth a listen to. Yeah. Now, this was something that was never explored. I know it's been said many times before, but Mike Yates and Joe Grant were supposed to get it together in this. And they never really explored any of the interplay between the characters it would have been well it's something they'd never tried before not in the series up to that point but Richard Franklin uh, it, whenever he's because he's done a few you didn't like the fish eyes <laughs> that's not good on that rot children 
the audio stuff that he's done hmm. is really very good. He's an excellent narrator. He started out with the Hornet's Nest stuff with Tom Baker. And, and I know, and I'm not a huge fan myself, but the in particular, the opening sequence of Stuff of Nightmares, the very first one, it's all Richard Franklin. He gets the first five, ten minutes to himself to describe what's going on. Mm. He does it really well. Yeah. And the Companion Chronicles is done for Big Finish. He does it really well. I've, I've listened to quite a lot of the Companion Chronicles. I really like the way that they've been done. They're all done by people who were good professional actors. They wouldn't have got the roles they had on Doctor Who if they hadn't been. So it's good, but it's not a massive surprise that they put in good performances because that's their bread and butter and has been for decades. The Companion Chronicles, I was really impressed by how good it was, was, is Vicky, uh, Maureen O'Brien's. Oh, Frostfire and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Frostfire, I really, really like. That's one thing. Maureen O'Brien's a case in point. I'm segueing a little bit, but she's only ever said it was just a job. I do like the honesty about it. She's never gushed about Doctor Who. It was just a job. She's not a fan. She's not really been interested all this time, and they've coaxed her back. And she, I mean, she's putting her all into it. She's not just phoning it in. But it's still just a job. It's just a job. And you've got to respect that. And I think that that's fair enough for the, the 60s companions. By the time it was getting to the sort of 70s ones, it was probably recognised that it was a bit more than just a job mm. because there was such a history to it. And certainly now, um, oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the regulars know that it's going to be for the rest of their lives. See, Doctor Who doesn't have to do this little country village stuff well. I've just noticed that in their, their little on-call bedroom, They've got assault rifles up against the wall, just not locked away or anything. <laughs> just there, if you need it, wake up in the middle of the night, bit of a bit of a fright. You've got a whole rack of assault rifles that you can go and terrify the local population with. And especially seeing as in in some stories, the unit headquarters is in the middle of London. Yeah, I suppose when you look at it that way. I do like this character of the archaeologist. You don't really get it beyond. I mean, there's a, there's the odd one scattered. There's one in um, Fendal. There's Ted Moss, but you don't really get these country characters are proper acerbic sort of I know what I'm talking about and you're an idiot real people they don't crop up much after Hollis and Three Doctors well you know what I mean is through the Pertwee era there's a lot of this sort of character going on once you get past it and you start going back out into space and other planets and things those characters disappear they're all quite straight laced and take themselves seriously there's not many comedy characters Richard Marsh in the vegetation, or done as a sort of idiot yokely type, yeah. like um, Will watches his face in the awakening. That's no, not Will Turner. That's something completely different. She is entertainingly bonkers. Oh yeah, and imagine that going live out on a news broadcast. And the <laughs> <laughs> you'd be on YouTube within the hour, love. Oh, there you go. See, assault rifles, old-fashioned phone books. Yeah. And they're not locked away at all. They're just racked up in their bedroom with a hole punch for some reason. 
it's almost as though it's said, well, we need to make this look a bit busy. We've got a tiny little set, so we'll just fill it full of stuff. Our country pub. Homemade witch dolls, 30p each. I've never noticed that sign on the wall. But, and that little... A little witch doll. little floating witchy thing. And he's drinking out of a tankard. Good lad. Again, it's another thing. And particularly this period. Doctor Who does pub scenes very well. They are few and far between, but when they do them, particularly in the 70s, they're very well done. Actually, this... And I've only just realised, it reminds me of a pub in Boscastle, down in Cornwall, called the Cobweb Inn, uh, which is next to a witchcraft museum. Cobweb's much bigger, but it kind of looks like that with their dark walls and the the witchy-type rubbish hanging off the ceiling. Well, I've often meant to travel down to Oldbourne just to go into the Cloven Hoof, because I believe they've still got the sign in the pub. They've kept it. Yeah. if If you make it down as far as Cornwall, and I know that's smugglers' territory rather than the demons... The cobweb does an amazing mixed grill. It's half a farmyard on a plate. Excellent. Yep. Sets against the unexpectedness, like a village bobby trying to do a daffy old spinster. These production notes are wonderful. Oh, Bessie. I do like Bessie. Um, much, much more so than the Hoomerville, which was just Th- That was gimmicky. a bit of fluff, yeah. Although, to be fair, John Pertwee, he, he had it built for himself. He'd... Um, I can't remember now where it, I think it was on a documentary. Was it 30 Years in the TARDIS? And he said that he'd had it built specially. And it was a fully licensed car, roadworthy and all this, that and the other. Um, because he wanted something that he could use in the series. So another of this sort of ilk of Doctor Who is K9 and Company. Now I know it's got its detractors. I think more for the theme music than anything else. But I watch that every Christmas. I think it's just... A lovely little bit of country witchcrafty. It's the village that never really existed. Sort of that idea that everybody sits around with pots of tea in the post office with the postmistress, and I love that. Sarah Jane spending her time jogging and drinking with a typewriter outside. Interesting. In December, corned beef, a form of canned cured meat, was a staple of army field rations. Oh dear, what have we come to when people don't know what corned beef is? I think they're very lucky. I've never been a fan of corned beef. Oh, I love corn dog. It's uh, what a good friend of mine refers to as war food. Makes nice fritters. It's, it's very it's nice. Spam corn. makes nicer fritters. Mm. Oh, nice oven bottom muffins with a bit of tomato sauce. We are segueing massively. Oh, Delgado really is fantastic, isn't he? It's just it's such a shame what happened to him because. Frontier in Space is not really a good send-off for him. And the story they'd got planned, I think it was called The Final Game, it was revealed that he was... I can't remember whether they were actually intending to to reveal that he was the Doctor's brother, but certainly he sort of redeemed himself by saving the Doctor's life at the end of it, and he died as a result. But if if that had happened, then we wouldn't have had Ainley chewing the furniture, and... I could have lived with that, you know. Ultimately, we wouldn't have had Missy. And I love Missy as a character. You see, I love Missy as a character, but she's not Delgado any more than... But Tom Baker isn't Troughton. Doesn't stop them being good. I'm not saying she's brilliant. Missy is a wonderful character. I just wish they'd not flowered her up like they do. It's... uh, I've said this before, but... Oh, look, I'm a woman now, so I've got a frilly umbrella and frills, and I'm going to be all pretty and flowery and this, that and the other, the deadly 
bent on it, but but the, the master has always been worn theatrical. theatrical costumes. Delgado did with all the gothic black, and then you've got Ainley with his embroidery velvet catsuit, and uh, even Derek Jacobi with his big fluffy pirate sleeves. And I like Jacobi's pirate sleeves. I'm not saying there's anything yeah. wrong with them, but they've always been quite theatrical. Mm. Um, so I don't see a problem with Missy being quite theatrical as well. In the same way as the Doctor has always been a variation on the frock coat, and mm. then developing into the, um, the almost duster jacket. Yeah. <coughs> and I like the fact that they carried on that bit with Jodie Whittaker. They carried on the... Uh, long coat bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. At this point I don't in time, really I like guess. the rest of it where they've turned her into a sort of base city role as well. No, uh, at this point in time, listeners, it's worth pointing out uh, we are pre Jodie Whittaker. It's uh, the 5th of October, she's not on for another two days. So, although there's been snippets and clips, we've not really seen her in action yet. And Joe being diplomatic. It's really no surprise why she was so popular with the dads. That that fellow who played the squire, has he been in something else? Probably. Shall we look at the notes? What's his name? Um, or am I just thinking that he's quite similar to Chin in Claws of Axos? He is. The trouble is, I don't know what his name is in this. I've missed it completely. It's Squire something or other. Win Stanley? Is that the fellow? Not Bert the Landlord. Professor Horner, no. Yeah, my head had got as far as Trelawney, but I think that's the squire in the Smugglers. That's the Smugglers, yeah. And see, on the subject of theatrical costume, <laughs> there's Delgado in his red frock. I don't think... It's, I know, I get what you're saying, and you're right. I, it's not that it was a theatrical costume. I mean, I think if you're going to have a costume, you may as well, it may as well be a look rather than just clothes. Mm. What irritated me was... They made such an effort to scream, I am now a woman, I am behaving in a womanly way that women behave in. And he's never strode around, this is how men behave, I am a man. It's just, if you're going to change gender, don't acknowledge it, don't go on about it. It's just, great, you've changed gender, but it's still the same character. Why would they do that? If you're trying to, if you're trying to explain so hard that this is the same character, and look, it doesn't matter whether they're a man or a woman, why do you need to reinforce the change. I don't really remember them being that over the top about it, apart from right at the very beginning. Oh, as time went, you know, yeah. as time went on. But how, how's that different to any of the other um, immediately post regeneration? Oh, new teeth, that's weird, kind of thing. Yeah, but those are physical attributes: new teeth, you know, new kidneys, that sort of thing. He would have those man or woman. I'm not, I've no problem with any of that. But to bang on about, oh look. A different set of new physical attributes. All right, then. I'm going to behave like a woman. I'm going to flounce. I'm going to kiss the doctor in a womanly way. Why why would you do that? Because it's explicitly later on, um, and it's quite a nice scene, actually, where Missy and Clara are having coffee somewhere in Spain or something. Mm. I think it's the beginning of The Witch's Familiar. And she sat there perfectly... Now, by that point, she's perfectly in control and Clara makes some quip about her being in love with the doctor or you know are you the doctor's girlfriend and she just comes back with this steely glare we're time lords we go beyond petty things like love and affection 
And I thought, that's how it should be. That, yeah. that was, you've nailed that. In Barry Lett's memoirs, which are well worth a listen, Who and I, that was actually, they started out with the Lord's Prayer backwards, the Master's Incantation. Yeah. And then they went on to a poem called Eskimo Nell. Now, I'd never heard of this. I had to look it up. But they decided that that was a little bit of a step too far. I, I can appreciate that. Having looked it up, I can understand why now. According to Wikipedia, it says that the incantation he uses is the nursery rhyme Mary had a little lamb backwards, as well as Damaris's Heyman's name said, said backwards. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. I mean, it's Wikipedia, so you take it with as big a pinch of salt as you take anything else on Wikipedia. But the thing I've really noticed on this, because I think last time I was here and we watched the watch this and this that was last time I saw the demons by comparison you can see all the patterning in his um, red costume and in the the other one it was just blurred and it shows how much better the picture quality is Mm. so it's got it's hats off to the restoration team what they do with these Mm. there's no other programme I can think of that gets this level of attention. Although, to be fair, um, the original series of Star Trek, they've gone through all of them and rebuilt them from scratch. All the film elements, even the sound elements, have gone through them. They are really beautifully done, the remastered uh, Star Treks. But by and large, there's not a television programme that I know of that gets this level of attention to to restoration no not even other big name stuff like the Avengers but I I mean actually these days how big a name thing is the Avengers it was huge at the time Mm. Um, but considering the revenue they must generate off this they spend a lot more on it than they'll get back So now we're on to episode two. And what we're going to do, rather than do full commentaries for all five episodes, is that we're going to give recaps at the end of the middle episodes and full commentary episode one, episode five, so that you're not ploughing through two hours or whatever of podcast. Because we're consciously trying to keep it to about... 45, 50 minutes. Because there's nothing that makes your heart sink quite so much as seeing a, a really interesting looking podcast that five hours runs long. for about three hours. Well, we've just watched episode two, and for this, Simon has printed off the Wikipedia notes, which includes synopses of each of the episodes. I noticed for episode two, the opening line of the synopsis is Benton loses his bet to Yates and pays him. The score was 13 to nil. Now that's a level of detail you probably don't need to know. But now we do. And you will probably never forget that particular fact. It will drive all sorts of useful stuff out of your head, but you'll always remember 13 nil. No, it even tells you what's in the ch- what's written on the church sign. Nothing in my hand I bring. Mind you, how is that any different to me reading off what was in the um, the, the, the sign the, the episode before? Well, overall, I think that episode did a pretty good job of moving things forward. The thing it's, about the demons is that 
I mean, we've both seen it enough to realise that two, three, and four really are filler material when the Doctor could have just strolled across the road to the church and had it out. But it's beautiful filler material. Yeah. And that, that's kind of true for most mm. episodes two and three and four in the four-part stories. So what else happens? The poor the poor policeman gets squashed, so he, he doesn't really have a, a big role. <laughs> it's, his, it's his reward for not squashing Miss Hawthorne. He gets squashed himself. Yes. Oh, and then we've got the we've got the heat barrier, of course. Yeah. And then the final cliffhanger is in the world's tiniest set in the barrow, which looks like and okay, it's supposed to be small enclosed, but it, it kinda looks like a cupboard. And we have Bok again. Yes. Oh. And I like Bok. Considering it doesn't have a single line, everybody remembers Bok the gargoyle. I think a lot of it's got to do with the, the Brigadier's line later on, of course. But. Absolutely. And we will be coming on to that. So we finish episode two with Bok threatening Joe. And now we're going to have a listen to, epi- have a watch of episode three. Right, episode three. Well, this is the one, the one that's uh, the bit that sticks out for me is the helicopter sequence, which goes on quite a bit and must have cost a bit for them to do. And after the massive overspend on Ambassadors of Death, I'm amazed they got away with again. But I will say this much about the Pertwee stuff. They did James Bond it up a bit in terms of action sequences. And considering they had no money, I think what they did at the time was pretty damn good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the whole chase helicopter sequence thing. The, 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 the real standout scene for me in this is the Miss Hawthorne slideshow. <laughs> I mean, quite why she needs to drag a slide projector all the way across the village to, to set it set up so the doctor can show three slides and be terribly clever about it um, and I I really like the interplay between those two characters because the doctor's doing his typical Pertwee pompousness and she's not letting him away with it and most people will do the whole oh you're so clever doctor and she'd just say no I'm not having this you're going against my belief system I'm going to defend myself and I quite like that about it. But you just have to suspend your disbelief a little bit about the uh, about just how mad Miss Hawthorne is and how much time the villagers allow her, they tolerate her. None of them seem quite as mad as she is. It, it's not the only disbelief you have to suspend in this story, to be honest. No, or in the, the whole series. Well, there's Azal's stockings. Which we will get onto in due course. I know they're coming up. Let's have a look at episode four. Actually, just before we do, Go an honourable mention to Osborne. Uh, Osborne, is it Osborne or Osgood in this? I can't remember. It, let's have a look at the, the notes here. Because Osgood, oh, it's, it is Osgood. It is Osgood. And I think that's a nice little nod to the past. I'd, I'd forgotten all about that because they've got Osgood in the new series. It's never been referenced that there's any connection, but the unit family the new unit family that they're building up. They're having a crack at it, but they've, they're have they killing them off as soon as they appear. Yeah, because that way they can do the whole, oh, we're killing off a regular character. Actually, you're not. Um, and it, <laughs> it, <laughs> What was it you once said to me? In, uh, in the Russell T. Davis era, companions just don't die. In the Moffat era, the King Immortal. And oh, yeah, the- <laughs> I mean, they, they have Captain Jack, who is literally Captain Scarlet. It's impossible to kill him. The many lives of Clara. And it's, oh, we've written her out with this big dramatic say, oh, no, she, she fancies coming back again. So we'll write, and then we'll write her out again. Hooray, and oh, bloody Clara again. That's not that I don't like the character of Clara, and it's not that I don't like what they did with her. But it when you write a character out uh, in such a dramatic way, mm. then keep them written out. I mean, okay, I had the thing with Tegan where she 
flounced off and then came back again. But that was entirely in keeping with the character and wasn't actually sort of killed off. And the, I mean, yeah. the other thing that irritates me, really irritates me about the new series is the whole, we're going to kill a character, we're going to kill a main character off. And then it's Donna is no longer the person that she became. So that translates to we've killed a character off. No. The only one that they've actually done that and gone through with it and uh, worked really well was Danny Pink. Yeah, he did actually die. He did actually die and they kept him dead and happy days. I have to say, I was expecting him to be back to life by the end of, um, was it Dark Water or Death in Heaven? One of the two. Yeah. And I'm not saying happy days because I disliked the character I wanted rid of Mm. him, but they'd made a decision. They stuck to it. They didn't retcon it out of existence if you have no intention of killing off the characters and the vast majority of the run of the show has involved not killing off the main characters, that's fine. We all understand that. Don't say you're going to do it. If you do say you're going to do it, then do it and give them a big, dramatic, Adric-style death yeah. and do silent credits and the, the whole nine yards if you want to. But if you kill a character off, keep them killed off. The trouble is you can't really get emotionally involved in a death if you know that it's not really a death. Yeah, exactly. It's publicity grabbing. Rory. How many times did Rory die? I don't die? know. I am so confused now by what Rory actually is. Um, he was an Auton, and then all of a sudden he wasn't an Auton, and there was no real explanation for it apart from wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. That's the biggest deus ex I think there's been in the series, that um, he just is. Anyway, on with, the, on with the story. Yes, episode four. Episode four. Now, this is the one where <laughs> the first and only, thankfully, time in Doctor Who's history, the Doctor is menaced by Morris dancers. On paper, it sounds ludicrous. It's not really much more credible on screen. And for anybody who watches this and isn't from England, that is actually what they look like. Um, and it's what they do. They they didn't make it up. And there are still people in little villagey bits of, of England that go around dressed like that, doing that. The, uh, well, uh, None of us know why. We don't know why. It's, uh, it's steeped in tradition, although nobody's quite sure what tradition. Um, but in, I think it's steeped in beer. I think that's what it's steeped there's in. There's a lot of beer involved and accordion playing and the clonk of wood on wooden bells. But in the north of England, where uh, we live, and certainly in this area, there are a lot of Morris dancing groups. It's nothing to be proud of. They exist. It's all I'm saying. Uh, let, let's skim over that. There's a, again, I've forgotten really until watching this. There's a lot and of why do they have that suit made out? Just going back to Morris dancing for a second, I've never understood why they have a suit made out of ripped up newspaper. Because that can't be traditional. <clears throat> um... <laughs> Answers on a postcard, folks. The, okay, uh, the bell, belts and ribbons <laughs> and tying in with the whole maypole and that sort of thing. I can, I can kind of get that. But newspaper is a reasonably modern thing. So to have a suit made out of ripped up bits of newspaper. I still can't think of anything to say about the Morris dancing. It's just, I love English tradition. We have some great traditions in this country and I think we should keep them alive and this, that and the other. Morris dancing is one of those I just cannot, for the life of me, think that it's anything other than a little bit silly. But still, each to their own. One thing that strikes me about this episode is there's a lot of this story, in fact, there's a lot of pub drinking going on. Even Benton finally gets a pint in this one when he sat down with Myth Hawthorne. The only other example I can think of off the top of my head is when the fourth Doctor goes into a pub in Devesham with Sarah Jane and asks for a pint of ginger pop. And the look of unalloyed pleasure on his face when he suggests, let's try the pub. 
I think that's more Tom Baker than the Doctor. I'm struggling to think of one. There's a pub in Battlefield. It's a hotel bar. Yes. It's, but, not, yeah, it's not really a pub. It's not actually a pub. And again, to you non-UK listeners, that may not be an important distinction, but here in England, it really is. Is there one in Stones of Blood? I can't specifically remember one, but it feels like the sort of story where there should be one. I can't remember. Stones of Blood, you see, I, I remember Amelia Rumford's sausage sandwiches, the <laughs> best-sounding <laughs> snack. And again, Stones of Blood, that's another one. I was only thinking the other day, Stones of Blood is my favourite of the Key to Time series, largely because it's got this demon's feel about it, this little country village with pagan rituals and Doctor Who does that really well. That little country village witchcraft, the occult. Doctor Who does it well and particularly well in the 70s. There's a bar in City of Death. Okay, it's French. It's more a cafe though, isn't it? Aren't they drinking wine? Um, Maybe I just naturally associate Paris with drinking wine. (laughs) I'm fairly sure it's a cafe. Okay. That's one to watch at a future cast. Oh, absolutely. City of Death. I haven't seen that in ages. I'm going to have to think about pub because there must be another one. It can't just be those two in the whole. Well, there's a nightclub in the War Machines. That doesn't count. No, that doesn't count. Shall we get on with, what are we up to, episode five? We should go on to episode five because we've just seen, again, Azal's tights. So, uh, episode five, and we'll do a full commentary for this one. Okay, we're on to episode five, following the slightly hokey maypole dancer bonfire scene where somehow the Doctor has managed to convince a load of thick villagers that he's really shattering street lamps and spinning weathercocks. Isn't this the the single episode that survives in the original video? Because it's much uh, better quality. It is much better quality. I think it is, yes. Yeah, because there is a big step up in pitch quality mm, here. Although part of me wishes it didn't, because that's a terrible video effect. Oh, you wait till we come on to Claws of Axos. I always forget that it takes the Brigadier quite as long as it does to actually get to where the action mm. is. And he spends most of the time either off out on the town or stuck behind the energy barrier. I always get the exterior shots with this mixed up in my head with the claws of Axos because again this is largely due to anecdotes and interviews where for claws of Axos there were massive variations in the weather when they were recording and they put it down to an alien influence and I always mix up those scenes with the heat barrier scenes and it's completely different I love that electronic music it doesn't date it at all I still say the worst one for that is the sea devils though Yes, how can you take somebody seriously who's wearing a newspaper suit? <laughs> An ad lib profanity, according to the production notes. I'll be blowed. There's even production notes on the newspaper suits, <laughs> including the tell, tell dates. You which dates of. That's a shredded Sunday Times business section on his head. Oh my god, the level of detail. So mote it be. <laughs> They're really mixing the the secret societies up here. Well, it's it's all Dennis Wheatley stuff, isn't it? Because black magic novels were big in the the early seventies, weren't they? 
I'm not sure any have ever ever been. Oh no, they did an adaptation of the Haunting of Toby Jug. It wasn't very good. It's not one we'll be doing. Again, your knowledge of TV much better than mine. The Demons was the first episode to draw on the influence of Star Trek. That's a. Are, are we back to the the production who, who came who came first with Vulcan? The production notes have now seeped into a description of a Star Trek episode. Who mourns for Adonis? I can't really see... I'm going to say, it's, it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination just because they've got a similar plot. But the plot isn't actually that similar. The final sequence where Adonis dies and Azal dies or disintegrates or whatever is kind of visually similar, but I wouldn't say it was similar in terms of plot. Yeah, you see, he doesn't like the newspaper suit either. <laughs> There's a, a lovely little short trip uh, in the 90s, the BBC, once the, the TV movie had been out, the, um, the BBC invested a little bit in audio stuff for a while. And one of the, the um, collections was called Short Trips. There's an audio story called Degrees of Truth, hmm. which is it focuses on the brigadier having to write a letter to the parents of somebody killed by Bob the Gargoyle. And it deals with the after-effects of soldiers that get killed in battle in Munich. I remember reading that. It's a lovely little thing. Mm. Oh, well, that's... How did you work that out, Brigadier, by sticking your stick into it? All he knows is that it makes wood smoke rather than actually burst into flames. But give him his due, he goes first rather than ordering... To be fair, yes. Leading from the front and all that. And poor Box having a migraine. <clears throat> no, not as Al. I met John Levine at a con a couple of years ago in Newcastle. Mm. And uh, it was a very affable bloke, but utterly mad. He's, he's a bit Hollywood these days. Yes, he? he is. Yes. It's horribly dismissive of the brigadier at times, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, definite wobble of the set there. Yeah, and Box staggering around as though he's, he's been in the pub. I can't think of many examples where the set actually does wobble. That was a definite wobble, particularly bad for a church wall. In the back of my brain still trying to think of pubs. <laughs> what have we created? Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> chap with the wings there and the the interplay between Pertwee and Delgado is just wonderful to watch it always was there's a I love I know you're not a big fan of either the audios or the novels but there was one by Mark Gatiss called Last of the Gathering which I like oh you do like that I Um, I I'm an intermittent fan of them I obsessively read all of the novels um more than a touch on the OCD side. Um, even the ones, even things like The Pit that I thought was mm, awful. Yeah, I think um, it's universally panned. But I, I read all of it, right the way through the, the Virgin run, right the way through the BBC run, until there was one that I just could not bring myself to read. And after that, I didn't... Well, I'm going to stick my neck out and say it was a Lawrence Miles one. Nope. From the BBC run. 
Mad Dog's an Englishman. That was Lawrence Wales. Oh no, yeah. and it was Paul Mars. I, I, I hated, yeah. absolutely hated the Scarlet Emperor so much. Scarlet Emperor. Do you know? What? I must admit, there's bits of Scarlet Empress even now, twenty years on, I can still remember, and I did quite like. They're on a market on Holam, and uh, he picked up a, a book called The Ajaib, and it was all these metaphorical adventures of this man who travelled in time and space. There were little fragments of niceness in it. But there was a, I think there was a, there was a sequence in that though of Iris Wildtime regenerating on a bus and sending them a video of it. I'm not a big fan of Paul Mars. I think it's a little bit off the wall for genuine Doctor Who. So I get you. <laughs> the thing I really dislike is the way Iris Wildtime is written. Now I like Iris Wildtime as a character. I really like the way Katie Manning does her in the mm-hmm. audios. But the way she was originally written in the books, it comes across very much as. Yes, this that Doctor Who thing's all right, but I would have done it so much better, and this is the way I would have done it. <laughs> and I just found it really irritating and massively distracting to the the plot. And what what was his first one? Because Scarlet Empress was the second one he wrote. Oh, I thought Scarlet Empress was the first one with Iris Wildtime because there was certainly the Blue Angel, where she regenerated into a Barbarella incarnation. There was Verdigree, which again I don't remember a lot about, apart from a flying bus and the Doctor having a massive mansion with all the money that he'd been paid from Unit. It was the Scarlet Empress that was first. Oh, that's the one where... Don't they travel through levels? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it really just comes across as, oh, well, we finished this level of the video game and go on to the next one. It's something like that, yes. It's not one that sticks in my head for the best of reasons. But the... I mean, getting back to the Last of the Gathering, though, there's a lovely scene in it where the Doctor and the Master sit down and have brandy by the fire and have a chat. And you just think, that is... There's no other pairing that could have done that. Pertwee and Delgado, if they'd done that in a, in a scene, even if they were at each other's throats, but with a brandy by the fire, you could have watched that and, and imagined it as a real scene. Have, have you heard the Big Finish Audio Master? Yes. Because I think that's brilliant. Oh, it is. That's wonderful. It is. Absolutely wonderful. And when, when Big Finish get it right, they really, really get it right. It is always, almost always, beautifully sound produced. The acting is, certainly for the, uh, the principals, is excellent. Generally what lets it down is writing, and they don't have enough and sufficient quality of, of writing to, to manage all of the output that they do. I will go with that. I mean, I've always been, a, as you know, I've always been a, a big fan and, and supporter of Big Finish. However, it can't be denied that there are very few peaks. I think a lot of it is that it's the same group of writers that have been doing it for how many years and they're running out of ideas. Mm. Um, I mean, Gattis has done that on the TV series because he stu- his original scripts are fantastic. And then you end up with what? Sentient sleep the gack out of your eye controlling what you do and it was just embarrassing to watch I've never re-watched that one I'm a, a big advocate that a lot of Doctor Who needs to be watched again after transmission in order to appreciate it for what it is Yeah, it's just not one that I've ever wanted to revisit John they- Pertwee took the model box home and kept it in his garden Oh, yes, they had complaints about yeah, they did, blowing up. And from that model shot, good grief. <laughs> Millions of pieces of demolished church in the props listing. See, look how pretty she is. She's clearly had a lot of work done since then. 
That's the master demonstrating his talent at... Oh, what's the martial art that uses the, the scarves? You've completely lost me. I didn't I know there was one. Indonesian, I think, and they they use weighted scarves at Pentraxilat. Yep, that's passed me by. That's a new one, folks. I'd forgotten that this was the one that comes before the Sea Devils. Yeah, because it's the, it's the final story of Season 8, isn't it? Season 7. Hmm. Yeah, again, production notes. There's no TARDIS or even a mention of it in this serial. I've just listened to Mary Tams, the first volume of her autobiography, and she said that they, they only had one TARDIS prop. She can't quite believe it, looking back now, they only had the one. And it was stolen while they were recording The Stones of Blood by some students. <laughs> There's a very, very detailed archive of the modern TARDISes, and they're up to model, it'll be Model H now. But there were all the different configurations of even the even which doors were hung on which prop and how many they've been. It's so detailed. The level of detail that Doctor Who researchers go into, like what newspapers on what dates, made his hat. That's the pop. And Nicholas Courtney, again, he, he did his, uh, for Big Finish, he did A Soldier in Time, his, his um, memoirs. He speaks very fondly of going to the pub and having a pint at lunchtime. I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoy it every time I see it. Yeah, and like we said at the beginning, the whole reason for picking the demons is just because it's really good. Um, most of the Doctor Who stuff we're going to talk about we've got a, a reason to pick um, so it will tie in with the themes that we're doing for um, our more archivey stuff but we've done demons just because we fancied watching yeah. the demons <sighs> right well I hope you've enjoyed that enormous amount of rambling that we've done. <laughs> well, that's Not entirely up. all on the demons, but no, it has um, been fun. Actually, probably very little on the demons. I think so, yes. One thing we're very good at is seeing away from the main topic. Yeah, absolutely. The gin helps. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.